Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we have some big breaking news on a story that I know a lot of our listeners care about. Russiagate, the FBI's misconduct. New big revelations coming out today on justthenews.com. I've got a story you're going to want to hear about. It's going to raise the rafters, and we're going to see some new declassified documents. Yes, some declassification has finally occurred. Stay tuned. We're going to have uh, the breaking news on that. And we just saw Bernie Sanders bow out of the race. It's now for formal. Uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden is the fall election. We're going to talk to Scott Rasmussen, the great pollster, the new Just the News pollster, about his thoughts on the election and about some of our early uh, polling, including a very shocking poll we did yesterday on uh, F Americans' confidence in the FBI. You're not going to believe these numbers. Um, and uh, we have w part two of our incredible interview with former Congressman Daryl Issa, one of the pros of oversight in Congress during his years as a committee chairman. He's trying to make a comeback in California's 50th district. We're going to talk to him about his election comeback, but also about his thoughts on failed government the need for better oversight in Congress. You're not going to want to miss this. A big breaking FBI scoop on Russia, Scott Rasmussen's wisdom, and more from Daryl Issa right after the commercial break. Stay with us. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And in a few minutes, as I promised, we're going to have the amazing pollster, Scott Rasmussen, and then part two of our interview with Daryl Issa. So you're not going to want to miss any of that. Lots of important oversight issues about the FBI, about big government, about failures in the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Uh, so much to talk about. But first, I promised you at the end of the last podcast that we would talk about a poll. Well, it came out. The Just the News Daily poll yesterday uh, revealed that 65% of Americans, that's nearly two-thirds of America, believes the FBI routinely violates the law when they're spying on Americas. That means when they're executing FISA warrants, when they're using surveillance, when they're wiretapping. That is how much the American confidence in the FBI has dropped over the last few years. And what's interesting is that um, the lack of confidence, that belief that the FBI is violating the law does not have any changes between parties. Democrats and Republicans alike 
had nearly the same perception, the same opinion about what's wrong with the FBI. And I think it really highlights something we've been talking about on this show, the great challenge that Chris Ray, the new FBI director, has to restore the FBI's confidence in the American public. So many people are frustrated with big government and big government bureaucracy and big government bad behavior. And the FBI has now become one of the poster children of that. I suspect when we're done, the NIH, the CDC, and other agencies like that will also fall into that category. We're going to learn about similar failures in the coronavirus outbreak that mirror these that the FBI uh, engaged in during Russia, and quite frankly, in many other cases, as we now know. Uh, when you have 29 FISA warrants and all 29 of them fail to meet the FBI's rules, all 29 are flawed. Most of the 29 have false information in them, just like the Carter Page one did. There is something systemically wrong with the agency, the culture, the behavior, the players in the agency. And um, I think the American public is now clearly keen to that. This poll was great. And in a few minutes, we're going to get Scott Rasmussen's uh, insights into why Americans feel that way and what it not only says about the Americans' trust in FBI, but the Americans' perception of their government. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that conversation. He's one of the most insightful people I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. All right, we're going we're gonna to get to those interviews, but now for the breaking news I promised. Uh, I am reporting on justthenews.com today that the uh, Director of National Intelligence, Rick Grinnell, acting director actually, has agreed to declassify several footnotes in the Michael Horowitz report from December. That's the report that exposed wrongdoing in the FBI-Russia collusion investigation, all the failures with the Carter Page uh, FISA. Uh, there are some very important footnotes, and my sources are telling me these footnotes will reveal that the FBI had evidence in its own intelligence files showing or raising the red flag that the information that Christopher Steele was getting to put into his dossier, the dossier bought and paid for by Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee through Fusion GPS, that that information was in fact disinformation from the Russians, i.e. he was being played by the Russians, i.e. he was being fed misinformation to mislead the FBI to tarnish Donald Trump. Now that is profoundly important for many reasons. Uh, first, let me give you the timing. It appears that this information will be released on Friday, Good Friday in the afternoon. That's not an optimum time for such a big revelation, but we're going to be on top of it at justthenews.com, breaking uh, the story as it comes out. But we already know today from my reporting uh, that this declassification is going to involve multiple footnotes, and it is going to deal with a section of the report where Michael Horowitz raised the possibility, in fact said flatly, he did not think the FBI had given adequate consideration to the possibility that what Christopher Steele had been given was targeted misinformation. The Russians knew who he was, knew that he might have had a client like the DNC or the White House, uh, sorry, DNC or the Clinton campaign, and they were feeding him information. Now, why is that so profoundly important to what we know? Well, it goes further to the idea that the FBI had no basis whatsoever to use the Steele dossier. Uh, as a foundational document, foundational evidence for the Carter Page FISA. But there are now new implications when you find out that in the files, the FBI had already this warning that this might have been Russia disinformation. Uh, first off, 
it means that some of the representations that the FBI made when they went up to Capitol Hill in 2017 and gave briefings to people like Devin Nunez and uh, Nancy Pelosi and um, then Speaker Paul Ryan uh, and Richard Burr, that some of those representations may have been false, perhaps knowingly false. And I'm going to raise one of those with you just here in a second here as I scroll through all these documents, because I want you to see this very important uh, passage that uh, got overlooked, I think, in the in the uh, Horowitz report. He wrote in a small section of the report, didn't get any attention at the time. Let me read it to you. According to an FBI memorandum prepared in December 2017 for a congressional briefing, so one of those briefings I told you about, by the time the crossfire hurricane investigation was transferred to special counsel Robert Mueller in May 17, the FBI did not assess that it was likely that Steele's election reporting was generated in connection to a Russian disinformation campaign. So they told Congress, yeah, we don't think there was anything to the idea that Steele had been the victim, had been played by Russia. Well, that's not what we're going to find out in these footnotes. We're going to find out that their own assessment was that there was evidence that the people Steele was accepting information to, interacting with, asking questions of, included a group of Russian oligarchs and people like that, and that it was highly probable, highly likely, highly suspect that some of this information was disinformation designed to uh, mislead the FBI, knowing what Steele would do with the information. But that's not the only reason. So you have the possibility now that Congress gave a false story that could result in disciplinary action or criminal action uh, if the Justice Department so determines. But here's another part. Let's remember that what we've been saying all along has been that the uh, intelligence community assessment, the one that Barack Obama gave at the end of his presidency, was that Russia intervened in the election by hacking in uh, Hillary Clinton's email and doing other things. That's not in dispute. There's widespread agreement that it happened. Republicans and Democrats alike agree on that. But the second part of the assessment was that Russia intentionally was trying to defeat Hillary Clinton and elect Donald Trump. Now, Republicans like Devin Nunes have often raised questions about that. So have former Russia experts for the CIA, like uh, former Moscow station chief, uh, uh, Dan Hoffman. But think about this. If the evidence is true that in the FBI's own files, the Russians were feeding disinformation to steal to dirty up Donald Trump, that would mean they were trying to harm Donald Trump's election chances too. And that would call into question the entire intelligence community assessment that was given by the Obama administration as they headed out the door that Putin was solely trying to defeat Hillary Clinton and reelect uh, and elect Donald Trump. It turns out they may have been trying to harm both candidates. And that seems more consistent with Russia's and the Soviet Union's long playbook known as Compromat, which is their goal is not to pick one winner or loser. Their goal is to sow such distrust in American institutions and American democracy in the presidency that Americans no longer trust their government. Boy, they've succeeded at that, haven't they? Well, that's why this revelation is going to be so important tomorrow, Friday afternoon. Good Friday. We expect this information to be transmitted to Congress. We're going to be on top of it. We're going to try to get a copy of it. We're going to try to get out there for you. Uh, but this is a very big revelation. We've been waiting two and a half years. We've heard all the promises to classify, to classify, to classify. Now we have it. There's going to be a major declassification. And the first revelation is likely to be that the FBI had evidence in its own files that raised the possibility that what Christopher Steele was getting in his dossier 
was Russian disinformation, Russia propaganda, Russia misinformation. This is a big deal. And I'm going to leave you with this one thought uh, before we go to commercial break, and then we're going to come to uh, our great interviews. Uh, Here is a thought that you should think about. In the middle of impeachment, there was a witness named Fiona Hill. She was the Russian expert in the NSC for a long time, served multiple presidents, very well respected. She used to work with Christopher Steele back in the days when Christopher Steele was um, an MI6 agent with Britain before he became a hired intelligence gun, uh, like what Fusion GPS hired during the 2016 election. She uh, was there really to try to draw out the case for Democrats that President Trump's uh, conversations about Ukraine with Rudy Giuliani was somehow untoward. But in the process of doing that, she blurted out under questioning from Congressman Jim Jordan, a big revelation. It's going to sound familiar now that we just talked about it. But back in October, in a deposition that didn't get a lot of attention, this part didn't at least, Fiona Hill said that she had, quote, misgivings and concern that Christopher Steele could have been played, that's her word, played, by Russian disinformation. She said that the Russians likely knew who he was, had done Russia work for the British MI6, would have suspected he was working for a Democratic client during the 2016 election and might have fed him information to dirty up Donald Trump. And this, from the NSC's Russia expert, from somebody that the Democrats built their impeachment case on, comes this extraordinary statement. Listen to this quote from her deposition. Again, not many news media are focused on this, but we're going we're gonna to focus on it. Their goal, meaning the Russians' goal, was to discredit the presidency, she testified, Whoever was elected president, they wanted to weaken them. So if Secretary Clinton had won, there would have been a cloud over her at this time if she was president. And there's a cloud over President Trump since then, the beginning of his presidency, in fact, that I think is exactly what the Russians intended. What is she saying? She's saying what I just said. The intelligence community assessment likely was wrong, that the Russians were trying to dirty up both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They weren't trying to help Trump and hurt Hillary only. They were to try to dirty them both up so that when whoever became president, they'd have leverage over the American people. There would be disgust, distrust, all those things. That came from one of Adam Schiff's big impeachment witnesses. It hasn't gotten its attention. But take all this into account now. The IG footnotes, the FBI files, Fiona Hill. We now have strong reason to believe that Christopher Steele's product may have been influenced by Russian disinformation, may have been fed it. And if that is the case, it may mean that our intelligence community got one part of its assessment wrong. Listen, I'm not going to dispute one bit that the Russians tried to interfere in the election with the Facebook ads, the hacking of Hillary Clinton's email. Everybody I talk to, Republican, Democrat, career intelligence, tell me that part is solid. But the part that is not as solid and may actually be undercut by the evidence we're now seeing, evidence that's probably been in our government files all along and hidden from us, was the notion that the Russians simply wanted Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. That was a John Brennan, James Clapper talking point, a Barack Obama exit uh, document. It may not have been a complete, honest, accurate picture. That is a profound thing to think about as we head into the Easter election, uh, Easter weekend, and uh, spent time with our family. We may see more reversals of the early storyline 
that we were given on Russia beyond the Steele dossier. Keep keep in touch on that. I think that's going to be an important development. All right, we're going to go to commercial break real quickly. When we come back, Scott Rasmussen, the extraordinary pollster. You're going to want to hear his thoughts on elections and the FBI and all things Washington. And then we're going to finish up today with the rest of Daryl Ice's interview, the congressman trying to return to Congress, the man who gave us lots of great oversight when he was in Congress. You're going to want to hear what he has to say about the FBI, big government, the NIH, and the pandemic, and also what it's going to take to win his district in the fall as a Republican running in a very liberal state of California. Stay tuned. We're going to go to commercial break, come back with two really big interviews. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, the one and the only Scott Rasmussen, one of America's great political thinkers, one of his great pollsters, and now partnering with Just the News. We're so lucky to have him. Welcome to John Solomon Reports. Well, John, it's great to be with you, and I'm thrilled to be working with Just the News. We are thrilled, too. And we've had quite a start already and uh, with four or five polls that are creating a lot of stir out there. But uh, before we get to those, I wanted to get your take on how the election in the middle of a pandemic has changed now that Bernie Sanders is out. Biden is the obvious nominee, and it's now a Trump v. Biden race the rest of the way. What's your top line takeaway so far? Well, the top line takeaway is that political people think things have changed because Bernie is out and Joe is the nominee. Uh, But I think among the general public, the entire discussion about the election has been kind of frozen by the pandemic. Uh, Going into the pandemic, people expected Biden would be the nominee. They still, you know, so nothing has really changed. And what happens in the next few months with the coronavirus is probably going to have a bigger uh, impact on the election than anything that's happened in the political world so far. Uh, right now, the polling says that Biden has a modest edge among registered voters. When you look at those who are most interested in the election and most likely to vote, uh, that becomes a toss up. So it's very close at the moment. We'll see what happens. And if you take California and New York, New York out, which obviously have a big tilt towards Democrats, sure. is um, is Trump in the middle of the country, what does that look like for him right now? Has he gained or lost support from his 2016 coalition? You know, right now you would say that uh, the president has gained some ground in what we called pivot counties at Ballotpedia. Those were the counties that voted twice for Obama uh, and then voted for Trump. And it looks like a lot of those voters are now saying, yeah, we kind of like uh, this Trump fella. So they're becoming less swing voters. Uh, but it's still, look, it's all about turnout. Uh, three critical states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, were won by a total of fewer than 80,000 votes the last time around. It's uh, small shifts in those states can have a big impact. If, look, if nothing changed, and of course in the political world that's an unreasonable assumption, but if nothing changed from today, my expectation is that you and I will be talking on election day about 
wow, things look close in a couple of these battleground states. And if Trump wins them, he gets reelected. And if not, well, then we have a Biden presidency. Um, And they're going to be the same states we talked about uh, in 2016. But November's a long way away. And especially, you know, this pandemic is unprecedented. Uh, Nobody knows really how it's going to play out or what it's going to look like uh, when things come to an end. What's the economy going to do in the third quarter after this big slowdown in the second quarter? Uh, These are all amazing things and nobody can predict what's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's true. We just haven't lived through something like this before and uh, there are no rules in the playbook for it yet. So that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I was on my... um, phone late last night and I was taking a a brief reprieve from the news. So I was going through sports uh, and I was on the sports app and all of a sudden this ad popped up saying, if you're a Bernie supporter, uh, you should come join the Trump campaign. Do you see that uh, uh, that dynamic playing out? Is there an opportunity for Trump to pick off some of the Bernie people or is that just a a pipe dream? Uh, There is an opportunity to pick off a few I think the more likely scenario is uh, to create a dynamic where the Bernie supporters are just so discouraged. Uh, uh, You know, they just don't see enough of a difference between Trump and Biden. They feel they've been burned by the DNC uh, two elections in a row. Uh, And so I think the the notion that Sanders supporters are going to go en masse or in any significant numbers to the Trump campaign uh, is a bit of a pipe dream. But we are seeing evidence in all of the polling data that there's just not a lot of enthusiasm for Biden. In every poll, and no matter how the question is asked, the people who are most engaged uh, are Trump supporters. They're the most excited about the election. They're the ones who are thinking this is something that's really important. Um, and unless Biden can change that dynamic, it's going to be very harmful to him in the fall. Yeah, that is something. And we saw that just the other day in our, our, our second poll, uh, the, uh, the Just the News poll, daily poll with Scott Rasmussen on Tuesday. We asked um, Americans to rank which Democrats had shown the most leadership. And uh, Joe Biden didn't fare very well in that um, in that poll, did he? No, not at all. Uh, Governor Cuomo here in New York came out on top 30 percent. think he's the Democrat who, who's shown the best leadership. Uh, you know, and let's face it, New York is the epicenter of the, the U.S. outbreak, and he has been holding these daily briefings. He's worked sometimes with President Trump, said some nice things about him occasionally. He has been at the center of it. Uh, another governor, Gavin Newsom, did well. Uh, also at 12%, so he came out better than Joe Biden. Uh, Bernie Sanders and even Nancy Pelosi edged out uh, Biden in this poll. So you have a situation where the party nominee, Joe Biden, is seen as providing the best leadership by only about 6% of voters. Democrats aren't feeling very kindly about him as the voice of their party. And that's that's an unusual situation. Normally, you know, when Donald Trump became the Republican nominee, there were a lot of people who were unhappy about it, but he was the voice of the Republican Party. Um, and normally you would expect Joe Biden to fill that role, but he has not provided a very steady and strong voice. And uh, there's already talk that uh, Barack Obama may have to come off the bench and prop him up a little bit. Do you see um, Obama as an, uh, an asset for Biden or is he the sort of guy that because he's so dynamic and such a great speaker could overshadow or remind people that Biden is not Obama? Yeah, Barack Obama is going to play a, a good role for the Democratic Party in terms of making the case that this election is important. I think he will play a good role in terms of unifying the party. He pointedly did not get involved uh 
encouraging people to vote against Sanders earlier. And I think that uh, was a good strategic move on his part. So he will be a plus uh, for the Biden campaign. But, you know, again, this is inside baseball stuff. Uh, the biggest thing that is going to have an impact on the election is how we come out of this pandemic and out of this lockdown facing the nation today. That is definitely going to be it. And we had some interesting polling on that. Um, the first one that really on the first day of the poll Monday, it really caught me by surprise because I know everyone's at home and we've been told wash our hands and wear masks and uh, don't uh, social distance. And so I figured that people were most concerned about health in the middle of a pandemic. But you found uh, quite a different dynamic that uh, the economics of this were more threatening to people than the health aspect. Right. Right. We asked, you know, we, we acknowledged that most people are feeling lots of impacts. Uh, but we asked which one is the most difficult for you to face right now. 30% said loss of income, and 27% said finding supplies. So those are both economically related concerns. You know, you've lost your income, and the supply chains are breaking down, so you can't find things. Uh, you know, I know myself, I ordered something from Amazon.com. They said it's going to deliver, and then the next day they say, I'm sorry, we just can't do that. We don't have the supplies. Uh, so those experiences are very important. Boredom and isolation and depression are also very significant. Uh, 23% of Americans say that's the biggest impact they've felt. Only 4%, one out of 25, said the loss of health care has been, or the loss of their health, uh, has been the biggest impact so far. And I think what this tells us is people recognize that something bigger than themselves is going on. They recognize there's a pandemic out there. Most people aren't going to get sick. But these, it's also telling us these are other very real issues. And for the moment, voters are very supportive of the idea that, that we should stay um, in this lockdown mode, that we should continue to be extraordinarily cautious to prevent a further spread, a further outbreak. Uh, but these other issues about the economy and isolation our building and policymakers are going to have to figure out a way to begin to reopen things in a fairly cautious but safe mode because uh, there's got to be a light at the end of the tunnel or these things will become even bigger problems. It, it is um, it is remarkable the challenges that uh, that lay ahead and all of the twists and turns that politics and the economy are likely to take over the next few weeks. Now, right now, there's a lot of discussion that phase four, phase five of the stimulus would be about um, uh, maybe launching the great infrastructure project that we've been talking about in Washington for two decades, but have never funded. Uh, what did you find uh, when we asked our Americans about what would they like to see in the next stimulus? Where did uh, infrastructure uh, fare and the overall options that are available? Well, you know, we it fared about the same as Congress not spending any money at all. Thirteen percent said <laughs> what they'd like to see done in this uh, in this stimulus is that big infrastructure project. Thirteen percent also said stop spending money we don't have. Uh, I think the dynamic here is people are looking at this pandemic as a short-term crisis. Um, they recognize that the government has some obligation to provide support for individuals who have been hurt by this because it's the government that is telling people that they can't go to work, that is shutting down these businesses. So they like the idea of putting money in the pockets of people. 28% said that would be their preferred uh, option for the stimulus package. Uh, but on top, Perhaps not surprisingly, 36% said, look, you know, if Congress is really going to do this, what they should do is spend whatever it takes on medical research and prevention to limit the damage from the coronavirus. Uh, this is the root cause of the problem we're facing. 
Um, people want to see this done. I think when you start hearing about the infrastructure, you know, there are no shovel-ready projects. Uh, we learned that in the Obama administration. That's right. Uh, by the time a, an infrastructure program begins to kick in in a big way, uh, most people expect this lockdown will be behind us and the economy will be rebounding already. So it seems, um, you know, a little bit uh, off the mark in terms of what's needed at the moment. Yeah, that uh, that was a real surprising finding. Um, so on the on the site right now, we have some breaking news that uh, that the Trump administration is about to declassify some footnotes in the Horowitz report, the report that exposed what was wrong with the Russia investigation. And those notes are going to show that inside the FBI's own intelligence files, that they believed Christopher Steele right from the beginning might have been uh, fed just Russian disinformation. That his dossier really was the work of Russian intelligence feeding him bad dope. And so this is obviously having a big impact. The declassification is going to occur tomorrow. You did a fascinating poll. I've been working on the Russia FBI story for two years, but uh, even I, uh, with everything I've seen, couldn't imagine the, the statistic we found out when you asked about an issue of trust with the FBI. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what that poll showed? Yeah, 65%, two out of three voters say they believe it's likely the FBI routinely breaks the law by illegally spying on American citizens. And I got to tell you, John, this is a, a pretty strongly worded question. This isn't, you know, do they sometimes step over the line? Are there a few rogue right. agents? Routinely breaks the law and illegally spies uh, is a pretty harsh condemnation. But 65% of voters say, yeah, yeah, we think it's likely that's what the FBI does. Uh, I mean, this cuts across all sorts of lines, men and women, white and non-white, Republicans and Democrats. This is a very strongly held belief. Now, you know, you're tying it uh, directly to what we're hearing about with this uh, um, investigation and with the entire Russia collusion story. Um, I suspect that's part of it, but I suspect also that what's really happening here is people have a deep distrust uh, of government. It's part of America's yeah. tradition. They've always been skeptical. And I think what we're seeing now is information is coming out and confirming for people what they feared or believed. Uh, it may have ramped it up a little bit. It may have increased these numbers, especially among Republicans. Uh, but in general, I think this is a reflection of, um, you know, people are just have never been very comfortable with a security state. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, exactly right. It really is a complete um, portrait of all these different things, whether it's surveillance or uh, incompetence, or uh, I know people are scratching their head today wondering, why didn't we spend some time over the last decade preparing for a coronavirus? And all those <laughs> questions float in people's mind about about uh, the quality of their government and the size of their government. Uh, now, you've got a book out that everybody has to read. This is a fantastic book. And if you haven't grabbed it yet, folks, get this book. It's called The Sun is Still Rising. Politics has failed, but America will not. And I, I just love this book. I, I, when I finished reading it, I was thinking there is a um, morning in America sort of element to it. We're going back to the Reagan optimism of the 80s. But uh, you really take on the failure of modern politics, particularly in Washington, but also how America can get around that. I wonder if you could talk for a few seconds, just what inspired you to write the book and where you think our country's headed. Well, I wrote the book because I was pretty depressed. Uh, I went back, you look back 2009, 2010, and some of my writings, I was uh, recognizing the political system was far more broken than most people believe. In fact, I, in any room I walk into, I say I'm probably the most pessimistic person about our political system in the room. Uh, and yet, 
when I began to look around, there were things going on. For me, there was a, a house fire, terrible. It, it destroyed our home and everything in it, but thankfully nobody was hurt. And coming out of that, I saw how a community responded and helped us get through something that was just horrific. Um, and that right. opened my eyes to the fact that you know, change in America, support in America, America moving forward doesn't come because our political leaders lead us in the right direction. Change starts outside of the political process. Change starts when people solve problems in their community, when they start new businesses and do other things. Um, and if we begin to recognize that, uh, yes, there's an important role for politics. And yes, we certainly hope that our political leaders will behave a little better than they often do. Uh, but if we're looking for them to lead our country, uh, we're looking in the wrong direction. And so that's what got me focused uh, back on on what really makes America work. The culture leads, the politicians lag behind. Um, and once you get used to that and really believe it and start looking around, you'll feel more hopeful about uh, about the future. It's sort of funny as, you, as you, you say that, I think our founding fathers ex understood that unique aspect about America. That's why they didn't trust much in a federal government or a large government. And they saw that uh, the ultimate strength of America was its people. And you, you just so eloquently uh, uh, did the, the, uh, reminded us of all that in this book. It's such a, such a great um, way. Tell folks, how can they get a copy of this book? Because it's, it's around in a lot of different places, right? It's, you can get it anywhere where you get normal books, except, you know, we're in a coronavirus pandemic. So probably the safest thing is to go to an <laughs> online store and order it. And you can download it for your Kindle or other eBooks and, uh, and get right. started right it. away. Yeah, well, folks, if you haven't, you got to grab this book. It's fantastic. Uh, it was inspiring to me, and it was a, a wonderful way of looking at the disconnect between the failures of politics and the extraordinary resilience of Americans. So please, please go get that book. It's great reading on Easter weekend. It'll be well, well worth the time. Scott, we are just thrilled to be partnered with you in this um, polling operation, and I want to thank you for everything you've already done for us. And uh, I think we're going to have you back on often on this uh, podcast. And also, there uh, maybe we'll have a podcast for you soon, which we're very excited about. Well, the, uh, both of those things would be welcome. I'm excited to come back and talk about all the issues of the day, and I'd be excited to host a podcast. We'll see where it all unfolds. Do have to close though by saying, you know, in my book, uh, way before all this FBI stuff, I raised questions about James Comey then. Some of the things he was saying and focused on the fact that he really had to focus, that his task was to try and rebuild confidence in the FBI before we move forward, before people would trust in them. Um, and again, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. That's why I'm optimistic. Voters have the right skepticism. Uh, the political leaders just have to catch up a little bit. Well, from your uh, from your lips to God's ears, let's hope that happens over the next <laughs> few years. And uh, Scott, again, thank you for all you're doing and uh, for all the great wisdom you share with us every day. And uh, we'll have you back on soon. Look forward to it, John. All right, folks, we're going to go to commercial break. And when we come back, part two of our interview with Daryl Issa, the former congressman trying to make a comeback his stories about oversight and big government track just exactly what Scott just talked about. So we'll be back with you in just a few seconds. You've, um, you've been an outstanding uh, uh, backer of law enforcement your whole life. And I, I know there are so many people in the uh, Border Patrol that really revere the work you did on Fast and Furious and other investigations. Um, I wonder if you could step back for a second, take a look at the FBI and all the things that we've learned in the Russia probe and the recent IG report this past week um, or a week ago on the failures in the FISA warrant. What do we need to do to get the FBI back on its feet to get Americans trusting again 
uh, in uh, our premier law enforcement agency? Well, this is a difficult question because I don't think any one fix will happen. But what we found in Fast and Furious, uh, the Brian Terry uh, death in the Arizona desert, was that it was a task force that should have been better. It had obviously ATF, it had FBI, it had the US attorney for uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area. Uh, and it had high-ranking people from the Department of Justice and DEA. And you go, wait That's a right. second, everybody was there. How did this happen? One of the reasons that happens is these organizations are often too close. The Department of Justice and the FBI are not separate entities, just the opposite. The FBI says, well, you know, we're this elite organization, and they co-op the others. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things that at the alcohol, tobacco and fire that often happens is if they need somebody to knock down a door and take the blame if it goes wrong, the FBI tells ATF to do it <laughs> and so that they can keep their reputation. Well, yeah. as you investigate multiple investigations over time, what you begin to realize is that we fundamentally have to make the FBI accountable to an organization that it is not, if you will, part of. Uh, and what that really means is, yes, it's important to have an FBI director and for that person to have considerable authority, but they shouldn't be nestled in a way in which, as you could see with uh, uh, the Carter Page uh, uh, fiasco and so on, right. they are so close that these organizations will go to the FISA court together and and do groupthink. So one of the challenges we're going to have we don't want to go back to stovepiping where one doesn't know what the other is doing, but we do right. want to have the FBI have an oversight that is, in fact, not just nestled within the Department of Justice. And I think that's extremely important. And it's going to take this attorney general in cooperation with Congress uh, in this next two to four years to do that reform. Uh, in addition to the FISA reforms that obviously uh, were necessitated by the willful spying on a presidential candidate. the um, One of the ideas, I had Jim Jordan on the show last week, and he said one idea that he's warming up to is the idea that, like in every other court, where there, there's the opportunity for a citizen to have an adversarial relationship against their accusers, that maybe it's time to put inside the FISA court an advocate who you know represents an unwitting American who doesn't know they're being spied on so that their legal interests can be better protected. Do you think there's a conservative Republican support for such an idea? There is. And uh, Jim Jordan, who uh, I, I'm always I'm always happy to brag that uh, I gave him his first subcommittee. Uh, and of course, now, That's now right. he runs runs the whole show. But uh, Jim's got exactly the right idea as as an attorney. He understands that there's something missing from that courtroom when uh, uh, when you go in. And, and one of the reasons for it is the FISA court is not a court. The FISA court is like a grand jury where there's only the prosecutor telling a group of people one side of the story and and, of course, getting the result they want. And. The reason it's so important is unlike a grand jury where, okay, then you issue a warrant and it's all public, our problem with FISA is it remains cloistered and private and secret. We can't have that where the defendant doesn't know he's been, he or she has been indicted. 
uh, that they're spying on them, that they are essentially making the case without their constitutional rights being protected. And so whether it's an advocate, an ombudsman, inspector general, those are just different words for the, the reality that we need someone with authority who in fact can independently lobby the FISA judge with information uh, that reasonably could cause the judge to know more and thus make a better decision. I have no problem with the judge still being uh, the final uh, determinant and being fair, but I, I don't ever again want a judge to know that he or she has been lied to only months or years down the road. Yeah, you can see the concern with the new chief judge who's taken over, just how alarming it is when you find out that 29 of 29 FISA applications that are reviewed turned out to be faulty. Not a single one of them met the standard of accuracy. That's got to be disturbing to someone who... Well, who and there's another uh, thing that we've discovered in the past that now has to be corrected. The FBI has always had this authority to say they'll provide paperwork later, the problem is they have an absolute tradition that they never do it. <laughs> and so they so never follow up, right? Checks in the mail, but it, it never, never arrives. arrives. And at some point, that behavior is not just a, an infrequent clerical mistake. It's grounds for somebody being uh, sanctioned in some way, pot potentially even terminated, and in some cases, potentially even prosecuted. And yet, not, not one of those things, three things has ever happened. No one has ever been demoted, fired, or prosecuted for failure to, uh, knowingly failure to never provide information, in some cases not provide it because, to be honest, it didn't exist. Right. That's what we found out. That's what we're learning. The evidence never existed. The Woods files were empties in some cases, according to the uh, Inspector General's um Findings. So it is really, really disturbing. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to uh, quickly talk about your race in San Diego, which is a very important uh, race. I know Republicans are making an all-out push to reclaim the House. You've got an interesting candidate, a guy named uh, running against you, a Democrat named Amar Kampa Najjar, who seems to be running against his own party. If I've been reading the headlines correctly out there, uh, tell us a little bit about his distancing himself from um, Speaker Pelosi. Well, he does. He basically, uh, I, I won't call him schizophrenic because that would require a degree I don't have. But every second word is is either he uh, he's having Buttigieg or uh, Bernie Sanders or somebody else endorsing him, uh, and he's for Medicare for all, or he suddenly is Mr. Gunrights, uh, uh, more conservative than Congressman Issa. And uh, as I watch him go back and forth, it's it's sometimes humorous because what ends up happening is, for example, he he tweets something adverse to Nancy Pelosi and within hours he takes down the tweet because she called or someone called. Uh, um, he is in an odd situation of being a, uh, a young candidate who worked for uh, uh, worked for Barack Obama in the Labor Department, obviously is is quite liberal in many ways, but would like to fit this conservative district by describing that somehow he has certain conservative credentials. So far, uh, other than his uh, uh, being pro-cigars and apparently pro-firearms, uh, we haven't found anything he's particularly consistent on. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's been interesting watching and uh, watching the uh, the daily coverage out there. When you look out with your um, uh, goggles out there and you, you you see what's ahead in the election, and now we got the pandemic throwing that up and in, into a little bit of a mix. What is the most important thing uh, that Republicans need to do and focus on in messaging and in policy to try to win back the House? I think the most important thing is going to be trust. Uh, Republicans did lose uh, the you know did lose Congress this last time, but we didn't lose trust. The American people still uh, trust Donald Trump, and they trust the Republicans that. Uh, uh, worked hard to get them uh, tax cuts and real changes that uh, that they could believe in. That's where we are, and we've got to remind people that they've got that. Uh, and and a good example, a, a very good example is you've just seen the uh, uh, this amazing uh, two trillion dollar bill. But you saw right. Republicans have to find embedded in it hundreds of billions of dollars of really inappropriate spending. And uh, that check and balance, I think, speaks well for Republicans. Uh, hopefully, uh, the we can make the case that if you want to have honest government and you want to have these large amounts of money spent only where necessary, you're going to have to vote back in a Republican majority because Nancy Pelosi will continue to push for her pet projects, you know, like the Green New Deal. That's uh, it's uh, definitely you can see those battle lines um, emerging too. just about who's more competent, who's more trustworthy, particularly in the midst of a crisis. That seems to be one of those questions that we're going to turn this election on. Let me ask you one last one. Uh, I had Steve Scalise on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and he laid out um, a vision for where Republicans will go with health care. And he thinks that after we get through the immediate pandemic crisis, that being able to put a final uh, and broad uh, approach to healthcare will help Republicans in a way that they they kind of got caught off guard in 2018. Do you think healthcare will be an important issue in in your race and also in the House races across the country? Well, it it may it may not be the issue that the voters say is number one, but if we're going to have an economy that's competitive globally, uh, reducing the this uncontrolled growth of the cost of healthcare, in other words, delivering a good product at a fair price is going to have to make uh, be changes Republicans make. As you know, uh, President Obama uh, insured America with a big government program, but he didn't do anything to lower the cost of that insurance. And at the end of the day, the American people have figured out that rising cost of insurance is because of rising cost of health care. We've got to actually deal with the drivers of those costs. And I think that's where Steve Scalise is, is right on. Go after the liability, the unnecessary procedures, the things that are driving up the cost of both medicine and, uh, and procedures. And then we can make healthcare more affordable, which makes it easier to figure out who's going to pay for it and who can afford to pay for it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's something we're going to hear a lot more of after we after we get through this um, pandemic. Well, Congressman, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining us today and uh, giving us all your insights on everything from pandemics to politics and the FBI. And uh, we wish you luck in your race and hope to have you back on the show soon. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Stay safe. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Wow. Daryl Issa, Scott Rasmussen, pretty smart guys. 
we're going to learn a lot more in the next couple of days. Stay tuned to justthenews.com tomorrow. There will be breaking developments on that Russia story we just told you about. We expect the documents to be released. Check Scott Rasmussen's polls every day because they're darn interesting. You're going to learn a lot about what's going on in America uh, in this new polling relationship between Scott Rasmussen and Just the News. And uh, please have a blessed Holy Weekend, a, a blessed Easter, Easter. We hope that you're enjoying your time with your family and can have a family dinner on Sunday that is uh, special to all of us, even in the midst of crisis uh, that the coronavirus has brought us. Um, from my family to yours, happy Easter, happy Passover. Please uh, enjoy that time with your family, and we'll be back with you again next week.